before I ask um, Brian to come forward and bring the, the scripture reading for this morning, I do just want to introduce the text uh, for this morning. Um, in the evenings, we've been uh, working through the book of Proverbs, and at the heart of the book of Proverbs is um, essentially the message that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Like a sonic boom, that message, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, reverberates throughout the book of Proverbs. But as Proverbs closes, uh, something really wonderful happens. Instead of being told to fear the Lord explicitly, um, we're actually shown what it's like to fear Him. Um, we're given pictures, as it were, at the end of the book of Proverbs, of the fear of the Lord. It's like when you're reading a book. Say you're reading a biography of someone, and um, sometimes if you've read a biography of some time, someone, sometimes you have the little section in the middle of the book with uh, photographs and, and pictures in it. And um, you might say, well, all, all of the books I read have pictures in them. But, um, but if you've read a biography, you, you know the section that I'm talking about where you where you actually get to see the people that the author is, is writing about. And this is similar. As Proverbs closes, we're given pictures of what the fear of the Lord looks like. Um, what it looks like, in other words, for someone to take to their hearts the message that is at the heart of the book of Proverbs. And there's two pictures. Firstly, You've got what the fear of the Lord looks like from the inside. So kind of like a first-person view. If you've ever seen a GoPro video on YouTube or something like that, you're given a picture of what the fear of the Lord looks like from the inside, and that's Proverbs 30. And then the second picture is you've got a, a picture of what the fear of the Lord looks like from the outside. So from an outsider's point of view, and that's Proverbs 31. And this morning we'll be looking at the first picture, the fear of the Lord from the inside. So if I could ask Brian to come forward and bring our scripture reading for this morning, which is Proverbs chapter 30, the whole of the chapter. Thank you, Brian. Proverbs chapter 30. The words of Agur, son of Jake, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me the falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you, 
and you be held guilty. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Three things are too wonderful for me, for I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship, on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your arms and your hands yet it is in kings' palaces. Three kings, uh, three things are stately in their tread, four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is the mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any, the strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. Thank you, Brian. <clears throat> well, before we turn to the Lord in the text, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful text that is before us this morning that paints such a beautiful picture of what it looks like to fear you, what it looks like to be humble before you. And we pray that you would give us the same happy eyes that this humble man has, that we might serve you joyfully, gratefully, zealously, all of our days with hearts full of affection for you and all that you have made. May we serve our neighbours as a response. Be with us now. Grant that we would look away from ourselves and to you in your beauty. That we might leave this place changed. Grant that everything we do would be an expression of love this morning for you and from you. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I, um, I stumbled across a, a beautiful old picture recently. And um, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you would have seen me put it up. But... Um, the picture was taken more than a hundred years ago, 
It's taken in 1917 in Levin, and it's of a mother bathing her baby on the deck outside. And the wonderful thing about the picture is this. The woman in it is smiling. She's smiling. And if you've looked at old photographs, you'll know that that's very rare in old photographs. And you will know this, right? If you're at someone's house and um, if they have, say, an old photo album there and you ask, you know, what's that? And they say, oh, that's got, it's an old photo album. It's got, you know, pictures of my great grandfather and his granddaddy and his grandmother. Open it up, have a look through. Now, what do you expect at that moment when they say, open it up, have a look through? What do you expect to see as you open that album full of old photographs? Photographs taken 100, 120, 130 years ago. What do you expect to see as you open it up? You all expect the same thing with old photographs. What you expect to see is no life, no joy, no color, no smiles, just cold and expressionless faces like that, don't you? You all expect to see that. Now, there is this really simple explanation for why people didn't smile in old photos. It's not because they were more miserable than we are today. It's because it took a long time to take a photograph, and so they had to sit there holding the same expression for a, for a good long period. And it's much harder to hold a smile than it is to hold just a cold, expressionless face. So that's not hard to explain. What's hard to explain is this. Why do we have the same attitude when it comes to the fear of the Lord? Why? When I said in the beginning, Proverbs closes with two pictures of the fear of the Lord, one from the inside and one from the outside, many people think exactly the same thing that they think when they're about to open an old photo album, don't they? They think, well, these pictures are going to be lifeless, joyless, colorless, no smiles, cold and expressionless. And if that's your attitude here this morning, you could not be more wrong. You couldn't. Because the man, Agur, who wrote Proverbs 30, the chapter that we're looking at this morning, clearly fears the Lord. He does. It's so obvious. That could not be more clear. And we'll see that in a moment. But just as clearly, this man, Agur, the man who wrote Proverbs 30, also has one of the most colorful, joyful, life-giving ways of looking at the world that you can imagine. He has happy eyes, to use the phrase I used a moment ago. And we'll see that a bit later. But that's what we'll be looking at this morning. The fear that you see in this man of the Lord and the happy eyes with which he views the world. Firstly, his fear. This man, Agur, clearly fears the Lord. And here I just want to read verses 1 to 9 again. The words of Agur, son of Jacob, the oracle, the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you when you be found a liar. 
Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be fallen, deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal, profane the name of my God. So I'm reading um, The Hobbit to the kids at night. And hobbits are, as you may know, very small. I think three foot six is the average height for a hobbit. And to a hobbit, being that small, other things appear to hobbits to be very large. Now, Agur, the man who wrote these words, wasn't a hobbit. He was a man. But there is a sense in which you see that exact same dynamic. He looks at himself and he sees himself as very small and he looks outside of himself. Specifically, he looks at God and he sees God as very big. And you see that come through in a few ways. Firstly, you see that dynamic at work, his smallness and God's bigness. You see that dynamic at work in terms of his attitude toward wisdom. He looks at himself and he sees himself as small in terms of wisdom. I am weary, O oh God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. And he looks at God and he asks, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? So he looks at himself in terms of wisdom. He sees himself as small. He looks at God. He sees him as big. So you see this hobbit-like dynamic come through in terms of his attitude toward wisdom. Secondly, you see it in his attitude towards God's word. He says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Again, it's the same adage. I am small and God is big. And who are you? And implied, who am I to add to his word? To say that he requires things that's, that he doesn't require? To say he's said things that he hasn't said? Who are you to do that? Who am I to do that? So again, you see the same hobbit-like dynamic come through in his attitude towards God's word. And thirdly, you see it in his attitude toward sin. He prays this remarkable prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be fallen, deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Again, it's this attitude of, I am small, God is big. He says, I don't want to sin, but I know myself. And I know that I am so depraved not only can I not handle poverty, I can't handle riches either. So keep me, God. Keep me. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Each time, it's the same attitude, the same hobbit-like attitude. I am small. God is big. Which is to say, each time you see in a word what? Each time you see humility, humility, 
which is to say each time you see the fear of the Lord. You know, one thing you see in Proverbs is that humility is intimately connected to the fear of the Lord. In fact, they're spoken of almost as though they're the same thing. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor, Proverbs 15.33. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor in life, Proverbs 22, verse 4. And that's why I say that this man, Agur, the man who wrote Proverbs 30, clearly fears the Lord, because he is clearly a very humble man. Now let me just ask a question are you like this? What's your attitude towards your own wisdom? Do you say with a girl, surely I am too stupid to be a man? Or do you say I'm pretty switched on? Another question, what's your attitude toward God's word? What's your attitude very specifically towards adding to God's word? towards saying God has a problem with something when he hasn't said he has a problem with that thing. That's actually one way, probably one of the key ways, the major ways in which conservative churches especially show a lack of the fear of the Lord, a lack of humility, because they have no problem going further than the Bible goes. And that shows a lack of the fear of the Lord. That shows a lack of humility. Third question, what's your attitude toward your own sin? Do you see yourself as absolutely weak and depraved and in desperate need of God's sustaining grace? If you don't, you lack the humility you see in this man of God. But here I want to come to our second heading. I said in the beginning that this man not only fears the Lord, he also has, and this may come as a complete shock, one of the most colorful, joyful, life-giving yet realistic ways of looking at the world that you can imagine. And in order to do that, what I want to do is just read verses 18 to 31, and then I'll ask three questions. Reading from verse 18. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and, and says, I have done no wrong. Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king. And a fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. And a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are of people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badges are of people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. Three things are stately in their tread, four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. So the three questions that I want to ask. Firstly, how does a girl see the world? How does the man who wrote Proverbs 30 see the world? The answer is, he sees the world in a very happy way. This week, my daughter Juliet insisted that Carol and I have a date 
in her restaurant where she would serve us food. And so we sat down and she started taking our orders. And while I was ordering, I caught myself doing something very strange. I caught myself thinking about what I actually wanted in real life. And I thought, you know, I don't feel like mashed potatoes, so I'm not going to order mashed potatoes. In other words, I mixed fantasy with reality. And this will sound strange, but you do see something very similar in Agur. On the one hand, he has this enchanted, verging on fantasy view of the world. I mean, just imagine standing next to Agur as he tells you what's going through his head, what he's thinking, how he's seeing the world. Just imagine standing next to him. He looks at the way an eagle rises on the thermals in the sky, and he says, that is too wonderful for me. I don't understand it. Then he looks down at the way a serpent twists its body as it moves across a rock, and he says, that is too wonderful for me. I don't understand that. And then he looks at a ship on the high seas, so something that man has made and something that man is piloting as it breaks through the waves, and he says, that's too wonderful for me. I don't understand it. And then he looks directly at man, so not something that man has made. He looks at man, the way of a man with a virgin. And I think this is a reference to romance. I think this is why we love books like Pride and Prejudice. He looks at, at a man with a woman, and he says, that's too wonderful for me. I don't understand. And it continues. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. If you were standing next to someone and they were talking like that, you'd think, I've never heard anyone speak like this. I've never met anyone who looks at the world like this. I've never met anyone who has eyes like this, who has such happy eyes to see so much joy everywhere and in such small things. Someone so happy and awed and enchanted, not by big, massive things, but by the smallest things, a serpent on a rock, an eagle in the sky, a ship on the high seas, a man with a virgin. So you have, on the one hand, this wonderful enchantment, this verging on fantasy. And yet, on the other hand, it's not as though he's completely out of touch with reality. Because you do have some people that just... They just come across as crazy and they're out of touch with reality. But on the other hand, you, you, you see this wonderful in-touchness with reality. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find on the lips of even the most mature Christian a more sober assessment, a more in-touch-with-reality assessment of human nature than verses 21 to 23. Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king. And a fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. And a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. We, for example, hear of a slave becoming king. And we think, great. In our naivete, we think, great. That's the classic rags to riches story. That's wonderful. A girl looks at that and says, even the earth knows that that means trouble. Even the earth trembles as it sees that. Because if, and history repeats this story, if you give power to someone who's been oppressed, 
it is not uncommon for them to just become the oppressor. That is not uncommon. That's human nature. And you see the sober, realistic assessment of human nature in a girl. But even here, this sober view of human nature still lends itself to happiness, doesn't it? Because this man, a girl, he's enchanted by the world, but he's also very unlikely to be duped by humans, by people, by men and women, because he's switched on in terms of human nature. So that's how he sees the world. He sees the world in a very happy way. Second question. Why does he see the world? Why does he have such happy eyes? I think it goes back to the beginning. Agur is a man who fears the Lord. He's a humble man. And it's his humility that's given him these happy lenses. Now, why would that be the case? Why would humility lead to having happy eyes of the kind that you see in Agur? It's a hard question to answer, but I think... It has something to do with the fact that to be humble is to be small in one's own eyes. Just compare, for example, Agur's words at the beginning with the happy words throughout the chapter. I am weary, he says, verse 1. But they, speaking of eagles, serpents, ships, and virgins, are wonderful, verse 18. I'm not wise, he says, verse 3. But they... Speaking of ants, rock badgers, locusts, and lizards, are wise. Verse 24. I am stupid, he says. Verse 2. But they, speaking of lions and roosters and goats and a king with his army, a state. Verse 29. It's all of a piece. These are big in his eyes. These things that look relatively small are really big in his eyes because he is so very small in his own eyes, and that's why they make him so happy. Third question, and the question I want to ask as we close. Why don't we see the world like this? I mean, do you see the world like this? Are you all awed by small things? Do they fill you with wonder? On the other hand, are you duped by human nature? Do you really know what men and women are like? What human nature is like? Do you have the same sober assessment of human nature that a girl has here? Do you have this wonderful mix of an enchanted view of everything combined with a sober, realistic view of humanity? The answer is no. We don't see the world like a girl does, and we don't see the world the way he does for the very simple reason that we lack the same humility, we lack the same fear of the Lord. But there is wonderful good news. And that's that there is a cure for this, for this blindness, for this lack of the fear of the Lord. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He had perfect humility. He feared the Lord just as he should have, and he saw the world perfectly as a result. He had these happy eyes, like a girl. Remember the Lord? He looked at flowers of the field. What did he see? Wonder, grace. He says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Like a girl. Jesus looked at the birds of the heavens and what did he see? Wonder, grace. 
He says, if God feeds them, will he not feed you? But then at the end of his life, what happened? At the end of his life, Jesus, who saw the world perfectly, who feared the Lord perfectly, who had perfect humility, was treated like someone who didn't fear the Lord, like someone who, instead of keeping God's law, broke it. And he did that in his perfect humility. Why? For you and for me. He died for our sin. He died for our blindness. He died for our lack of awe and love for the Lord. So trust in his death to save you and ask that he would give you eyes to see in wonderful color his grace and beauty everywhere. Will you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us humility before you, that we would truly fear you, that we might have the happy eyes of the author of Proverbs 30, and that we might serve you with joy all of our days, for your joy is our strength, so make us a happy people, that we might be a strong people in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.